Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. Hey, guys. uh, Gay sex is great. Like, if you haven't given it a try, you should. I highly recommend it. Of course, gay sex has plenty of adversaries. Sometimes people are like, oh, gay sex? That's gross. It's unnatural. So unnatural. But I'm sorry, do you want to be having natural sex? Like, have you seen animals bang? It's terrifying. They're decapitating. They're raping. They're doing a dance for 15 minutes. Also, gay sex is unnatural. That argument is dumb because the thing is some animals do have gay sex sorry to tell you that haters that's right despite what you might think not all dogs go to heaven oh my god it's american phil right at the top yeah i'm running bits what of it what of it guys um it's kind of on subject though it is Because know who had a weird relationship with gay sex? None other than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know him. You love him. He was the 32nd president of the United States. You know, the guy who cut the New Deal during the Great Depression. That guy. What's maybe not as well known is that his wife slash cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt, was allegedly queer. But, like, let's be real. We all know she was, okay? Misinterpretations. And they were just pals. Just That's just coded language for, like, they were roommates. And what it seems is that FDR accepted her relationships. Uh, He was accepting of relationships with lesbian women. He also had other friends who were gay, like Sumner Wells. He was a gay man who served in FDR's administration. So it seems like he was, like, pro-gay and so probably like pro-gay sex, you know? <laughs> but if we go back to the time before he was president, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated, okay? Before he was the president, FDR worked for the Navy, and the Navy was having a bit of a problem, a gay problem. 
or at least the government was making it their problem. They could have just like not had a problem. But, you know, we're in the early 1900s for this episode and gayness and the government were at odds. Truly no surprise there. And the government was pulling some shady shit to catch gay men having gay sex. Gay men who were in the Navy. And who signed off on it? Well, none other than Franklin D. Roosevelt. Cue the music. This is American Filth. I'm Gabby Watts. Every week I bring you a filthy story from American history. Today's episode, the Newport Jizz Festival. We find ourselves in Newport, Rhode Island. At the time, it's known as the best summer retreat for America's richest families. Good for them. But that kind of got fucked up for them during World War I. Because Newport is where the government decided to build, drum roll please, a naval base. By the end of 1917, there were 2,000 sailors stationed there, and then 12 times that many by the end of the next year. And here's the thing, we don't always think about all of the consequences of war, you know? Not only does war kill people, but it also ruins vacations. But all of those Navy men were stressing out the head of the Naval Department, Josephus Daniels. The sailors were getting rowdy, spending money on liquor and cocaine and women to spend the night with, or maybe just a couple hours. Daniels tried crackdowns and closing the brothels. But Newport's mayor didn't see or didn't want to see any of these shenanigans and declared Newport as clean as any city in the United States. Fast forward to February 1919. World War One has begun to wind down with the signing of the armistice. Servicemen are coming home. People are, of course, beyond happy for the war to be over. And what better way to blow off some steam than to party and get laid? However, some people had pretty strong opinions about how and with whom people should be getting their rocks off. So let's meet a sailor. Chief Machinist Mate Evan Arnold. Arnold had transferred to Newport, Rhode Island from San Francisco, California. He hadn't been there long, but he was constantly in and out of the station's hospital because he suffered from severe rheumatism. And if you guys have ever been stuck in a hospital, you know it sucks. It's boring. You're glued to the bed. The food, terrible. And back then, they didn't even have a phone to stare at. So the best you could hope for is to have good people to talk to. And luckily, Arnold found himself hitting it off with the other sailors around him. Most of them were a lot younger than him. But he thought he was making friends at first. 
As he got to know the other Navy men at the hospital, conversations turned to social life at Newport. And that's when Arnold heard them talk about some scandalous shit like cross-dressing, sexual favors, and worst of all for Arnold, sodomy. And here's where the problem began. First of all, when we're talking about cross-dressing, apparently that was pretty common among the Navy servicemen. You know, one, they would dress up as women for plays and performances at the Newport Naval Academy. Also, cross-dressing was part of their kind of, you know, traditions. Like, sailors would dress in drag as like a rite of passage when they would cross the equator for the first time. But even though this cross-dressing was part of the Navy's culture, it still raised a few eyebrows. And it's not really what bothered Arnold so much. For him, it was that talk of sodomy and gay sex that just really got under his skin. At the hospital, one of the sailors that Arnold met was Samuel Rogers. Rogers was very effeminate. And this made Arnold ask, is this dude gay? And as he talked to other people, it turned out that yes, he was. Rogers was known around the town as a pogue, which meant punk at the time, meaning someone who enjoyed butt sex. Duh. Thomas Brunel was another patient that Arnold met at the hospital. Arnold discovered that Brunel was going steady with another guy named Billy Hughes, who was nicknamed Salome. Salome played the female lead in a play at the naval base and had dressed in drag for it. And Brunel admitted that Salome had paid him for sex. Brunel told Arnold that there were dudes in the Navy who would go to these events where they would cross-dress and use women's names. Some of the people who attended these events included a guy who worked in the morgue at the hospital, a local librarian, and an Episcopal chaplain. Another person Arnold met at the hospital was Fred Hoge. Hoge's nickname was Theta Barra. He and this other guy, who went by Ruth, were praised for their oral skills, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Another guy known for his oral skills in this group of men was J. Becky Goldstein. Not only was he good at oral, uh, he also got the compliment that he had a nice chin to rest a pair of balls on. Then there's this other dude, Frank Dye, who is so good that he could draw your brains out through your penis. These men, along with some others, called themselves the Ladies of Newport. As with all subcultures, the ladies of Newport had their own rules and terms for these lurid activities. You know, if we're thinking about terminology today, we call the person who's on top a top and the person who's on bottom a bottom. Simple. Easy. But at the time, bottoms were called fairies. They're the ones who did the receiving. A dick in the butt if you don't get it. And then the tops were called trades. They were the ones who did... The fucking. Another way it was put in this group was the fairies sucked and the trades fucked. Cute. Fairies were often flamboyant feminine men who were more obviously gay. Trades were the masculine men, and if you were a trade, you weren't really considered queer. And this was a dynamic that kind of kept up until Stonewall. 
So Arnold was hearing all of this information, and he was quite upset by it. And no one really knows why he was such a homophobe, but he was obsessed with eradicating sodomy. He doesn't want people to do that, like in a very unhealthy way. It definitely has that undertone of one who doth protest too much. And the thing is, Arnold was so obsessed with eradicating sodomy that he had been a detective for nine years in his home state of Connecticut. Apparently, before the war, there were these detectives who specialized in homosexual hunting around the country. And as Arnold was a detective, part of his job was, quote, running down perverts. Now, tracking down and detaining the ladies of Newport, that was going to be his new thing. The ladies of Newport were known to party around these apartments at the corner of Whitfield Court and Golden Hill Street. But it was the local YMCA that was ground zero. You know how people would cruise in parks and such? Well, it's basically the same idea, just at the local rec center. So Arnold got all of this info at the hospital, and now he decided it was up to him to eradicate sodomy in Newport. And he gathered himself a team. He approached the station's welfare officer, Lieutenant Erastus Hudson, with his concerns. And Hudson agreed. Before long, a four-man court of inquiry was made to study the immoral conditions at the Newport Naval Base under Lieutenant Commander Murphy Foster. And now at this point, our friend FDR, he was acting as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He also agreed with Arnold and Hudson that this degenerate behavior deserved a most searching and rigid investigation. So Arnold and Hudson made a game plan. After this break, the sodomy sleuths start their investigation. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. 
if you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Arnold convinced everyone that he should lead the investigation. And the first thing he did was find volunteers to go undercover and hang out at the YMCA and the other spots that the ladies of Newport and other suspected gays would spend time at. But he had strict rules about who he would accept on his detective team. All the men had to be in their late teens, early 20s, attractive, not terribly bright, and be willing to do whatever it took to get the evidence needed to convict their targets of sodomy. Whatever it took, a.k.a. butt sex. (laughs) Arnold promised his men that no matter what they did, they would not get into trouble because everything they were doing was by order, not because they wanted to. I mean, no wonder there were so many young men happy to volunteer. Do what they want under the guise of being operatives in investigation? Sounds like a great time. The operatives, as the young volunteers were called, were given three goals. Get info on the cocaine joints and liquor sales, get info on the sex workers in the area, and finally, gather information about the quote, cocksuckers and rectum receivers. Now, Arnold's men didn't really focus on the sex workers or drug and alcohol use. Their focus was on finding the gay men. So the operatives, they went about their investigation. They hung out at the YMCA, took nighttime strolls at the beach and cemetery, had dates, went to parties, ate at popular restaurants, At one of these restaurants, a server there, Eddie Harrington, was known to like muscular seamen and would squeeze on those muscles while taking orders. The operatives' reports come flying in with very specific details about the sodomy. Because again, Arnold had told his operatives to do whatever it took to get the sailors on charges of sodomy. That meant that he would make them record everything that happened during sex, even the orgasms. A couple of them admitted to having anal sex until they came with their partners. Transcripts indicate other men stayed the night after they were done having sex. One even paid for the room. In fact, the operatives were getting so much oral sex while they were undercover, it was embarrassing to the Navy. The only thing that Arnold had put off limits was kissing. 
especially for trades. Because apparently, if you kiss, that makes that's that's when you're gay. Okay, not the butt sex, it's the kissing. One new operative who was brought in during the summer was named James Goggins. By the time he had arrived, there were already 40 operatives. And the thing about James is two times he got head from the same guy. And both times he somehow forgot to get this guy's name. But what he could remember was that the guy sucking him off told him that he had a large penis. Arrests started happening as early as March 17, 1919, and they lasted through the summer. Fred Hoge was the first sailor to be brought in. He was one of the guys that Arnold had met at the hospital. Before the war, he was a bit part actor. And even though he was pretty discreet, he found himself being questioned about the ladies of Newport. Of course, it didn't take much for him to talk. He was scared, like who wouldn't be? Because this is a crazy thing, about this point in time, people could still be hanged for sodomy. The stakes are high. Within five days, five men were sitting in the brig. There were dozens more by the end of the week. And Arnold's superiors were worried that there wouldn't be enough space to hold all the people that he and his crew were bringing in. By May 1st, 1919, there was enough evidence to court-martial 15 sailors. They were charged with sodomy and, quote, scandalous conduct. All the men were thrown in jail for the summer and were tried in the fall. Some ended up being released, and others had to serve various prison terms. But Arnold wasn't done. He and his investigative partner Hudson and a few other eager beavers wanted to start rounding up gay civilians as well. So Arnold went to Roosevelt and asked for funds to expand his operation. At this point, Roosevelt did know what was happening, and he still said, yes, why not? But when they started rounding up civilians, this is where Arnold and his crew made their fatal mistake. Arnold had one guy in particular that he had set his sights on, a prominent local minister that had a solid reputation in the church and the community. If Arnold hadn't turned his sights on the Episcopal minister, the public might have never learned what fucked up shit he was doing this entire time. Reverend Samuel Neal Kent was an older man of the church. And allegedly, according to Gaydar investigator Arnold, Kent was paying sailors to have sex with him. They had been seen entering and leaving the parish house on Spring Street. In the middle of the summer of 1919, Kent was arrested for 11 counts of, quote, lewd behavior, which would lead to two trials that would fuck up the investigation for Arnold. During the first trial, the public was pissed. Everyone was learning about Arnold's investigation, how it had employed teenagers like sex workers, walking the streets and going to places full of alcohol and drugs. And they were also pissed off about how the operatives in their 20s had been ordered to have their bodies used in unspeakable ways. One of the operatives on the stand said that he had been told to let Kent play with my penis and to allow it until I had an omission. And then the church couldn't believe that Kent was guilty of these charges. Scandalous. It was just scandalous. To them, the 46-year-old chaplain was a great dude. He was someone who had gone to a prominent Latin school and had chosen to devote his life to the Almighty Father. He had risked his life the year before taking care of the sick during the influenza epidemic. 
His nickname, after all, was Pop Kent. As far as the church was concerned, there was absolutely no way he had partaken in sex with other men, let alone paid for it. That would be so crazy if someone in the church had sex with young men. That would be crazy. But on the other side, the prosecuting attorney had no problem believing that Kent was guilty. What the attorney didn't count on was how the evidence was collected. The attorney wasn't prepared for how the judge, jury, and not to mention the public was going to react to the news. At the end of the trial, Kent was declared innocent. But the government wasn't done with him yet. They had a loophole. There was this new war statute that basically made it illegal for there to be any behavior leading to moral contamination within a 10-mile radius of any military place. And they were using this loophole to take Kent to federal court. What tricksters! The second trial started in January 1920. During this trial, Kent's attorney pointed out all the holes in the operative's stories. And I don't mean buttholes. The attorneys said that their memories weren't exact and that they had actually enjoyed the attention from other men. This line of defense turned the trial's focus again from Kent to the concern of how the government had used these young men in the operation. Like the public in the first trial, they didn't care about the lust of the ladies of Newport. They cared about how the Navy was doing fucked up shit to accuse them of that. Plus, so many people testified in Kent's favor, including 14 clergymen, surprise, surprise, business leaders, prominent socialite friends. And so once again, Kent was found innocent. But here's where it gets a little dicey. After the second trial, the church found themselves in a bit of a conundrum. They wanted the Navy to apologize to Kent, which means that they were calling the guys who testified liars. But they also wanted the entrapment methods to stop. But the thing is, if those young men, those operatives were lying, then why would the entrapment methods matter? See the problem? While all of this was happening, Navy Secretary Josephus Daniels was worried it would affect enlistment. So he was forced to call a high-level naval investigation into the matter. So there was a naval investigation, which then led to a Senate investigation. Three senators read the testimony and trial transcripts and traveled to interview the sailors who had been part of the operation. Fred Hoge, remember him, told them at one point that his friend was threatened, that the Navy could make his life hard if he didn't say that he had slept with Kent. Others said that they were coached on what to say, denied counsel, or beaten under interrogation. And then when the Senate members met with Roosevelt, Arnold, and Hudson, they had all these very convenient memory lapses. Oh, I can't remember this. I can't remember this. Uh Uh-huh, so crazy, so long ago. AKA a few months. Two of the senators also said that if the medical and scientific world was considering homosexuality to be a mental disorder, it should be treated as such. It was proposed that gay men should be dishonorably discharged and get medical treatment. But this idea was shot down by Daniel's successor, Edwin Denby. He argued that if that was the case, gay men would join the Navy for safety, basically using the Navy as their beard. During this whole time, Roosevelt continued to say that he didn't know what was going on during the operation. He was like, no, I had no part in it. I had no knowledge of what was going on. But the Senate committee called his actions, quote, reprehensible. One of the senators on the committee asked for all of the men to be released since the government didn't follow due process. 
After the whole Senate committee's report was released, the New York Times ran a headline which said, A Navy scandal to F.D. Roosevelt. Details are unprintable. Which pretty much speaks for itself. And in case you were wondering, uh, before this committee report was released, Roosevelt had already resigned from his position at the Navy so that he could run for vice president. And then even when the report was released, it was quickly swept under the rug. It was just too much for the virgin eyes and ears of that time period. And then by the time FDR was running for president, it had been forgotten. Ken ended up being kicked out of the church a year later. He worked for a minute as a member of the clergy on a cruise ship, but that was it. He died in 1943, living in Florida, working secular jobs. And indeed, by the end of 1920, all the ladies of Newport who had been taken to prison were released as civilians. And there's really not that much information about what happened to the operatives. Except in the public eye, they were labeled as dupes. After all, they had willingly had sex with men to catch homosexuals. As always, we learn a lesson from this story. And I think what we learned from this episode is that if you're going to do something scandalous, do something that is so scandalous that a newspaper refuses to print what happened, but then people never really know how scandalous it is, and then they'll just forget about it because it's too crazy, and then they will also have memory lapses, okay? It also proves that everyone wants to have gay sex, and they'll do whatever it takes to do it. This has been another episode of American Filth. American Filth is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's hosted by me, Gabby Watts, and this episode was written by Miranda Hawkins. The theme song was by me and Jesse Neiswanger, and Jesse Neiswanger did the sound design and mixing for this episode. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock, and our executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, and Brandon Barr. Please like, subscribe, review, etc. American Filth, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can also follow along on Instagram at American Filth Pod. Bye, School of Humans. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs in schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.